Chapters 3, 4, and 5 of The Abysmal Brute by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Once in San Francisco, Sam Stubner's troubles began. Not that young Pat had a nasty temper, or was grouchy as his father had feared. On the contrary, he was phenomenally sweet and mild but he was homesick for his beloved mountains also he was secretly appalled by the city though he trod its roaring streets imperturbable as a red indian i came down here to fight he announced at the end of the first week where's jim hanford stubner whistled a big champion like him wouldn't look at you was his answer go and get a reputation is what he'd say i can lick him but the public doesn't know that if you licked him you'd be champion of the world and no champion ever became so with his first fight i can but the public doesn't know it pat it wouldn't come to see you fight and it's the crowd that brings the money in the big purses that's why jim hanford wouldn't consider you for a second there'd be nothing in it for him Besides, he's getting three thousand a week right now in vaudeville, with a contract for twenty-five weeks. Do you think he'd chuck that for a go with the man no one ever heard of? You've got to do something first. Make a record. You've got to begin on the local dubs that nobody ever heard of. Guys like Chubb Collins, Roughhouse Kelly, and the Flying Dutchman. When you've put them away, you're only started on the first round of the ladder but after that you'll go up like a balloon i'll meet those three named in the same ring one after the other was pat's decision make the arrangements accordingly stubner laughed what's wrong don't you think i can put them away i know you can stubner assured him but it can't be arranged that way you've got to take them one at a time besides remember i know the game and i'm managing you this proposition has to be worked up and i'm the boy that knows how if we're lucky you may get to the top in a couple of years and be the champion with a mint of money pat sighed at the prospect then brightened up and after that i can retire and go back home to the old man he said stubner was about to reply but checked himself strange as was this championship material he felt confident that when the top was reached it would prove very similar to that of all the others who had gone before besides two years was a long way off and there was much to be done in the meantime when pat fell to moping around his quarters reading endless poetry books and novels drawn from the public library stubner sent him off to live on a contra costa ranch across the bay under the watchful eye of spider walsh at the end of a week spider whispered that the job was a cinch his charge was away and over the hills from dawn till dark whipping the streams for trout shooting quail and rabbits and pursuing the one lone and crafty buck famous for having survived a decade of hunters it was the spider who waxed lazy and fat while his charge kept himself in condition as stubner expected his unknown was laughed at by the fight club managers 
were not the woods full of unknowns who were always breaking out with championship rashes a preliminary say of four rounds yes they would grant him that but the main event never stubner was resolved that young pat should make his debut in nothing less than a main event and by the prestige of his own name he at last managed it with much misgiving the mission club agreed that pat glendon could go fifteen rounds with roughhouse kelly for a purse of one hundred dollars it was the custom of young fighters to assume the names of old ring heroes so no one suspected that he was the son of the great pat glendon while stubner held his peace it was a good press surprise package to spring later came the night of the fight after a month of waiting stubner's anxiety was keen his professional reputation was staked that his man would make a showing and he was astounded to see pat seated in his corner a bare five minutes lose the healthy color from his cheeks which turned a sickly yellow cheer up boy stubner said slapping him on the shoulder the first time in the ring is always strange and kelly has a way of letting his opponent wait for him on the chance of getting stage fright it isn't that pat answered it's the tobacco smoke i'm not used to it and it's making me fair sick his manager experienced the quick shock of relief a man who turned sick from mental causes even if he were a samson could never win to place in the prize ring as for the tobacco smoke the youngster would have to get used to it that was all young pat's entrance into the ring had been met with silence but when roughhouse kelly crawled through the ropes his greeting was uproarious he did not belie his name he was a ferocious-looking man black and hairy with huge knotty muscles weighing a full two hundred pounds pat looked across at him curiously and received a savage scowl after both had been introduced to the audience they shook hands and even as their gloves gripped kelly ground his teeth convulsed his face with an expression of rage and muttered you've got your nerve with you he flung pat's hand roughly from his and hissed i'll eat you up ye pup the audience laughed at the action and it guessed hilariously at what kelly must have said back in his corner and waiting the gong pat turned to stubner why is he angry with me he asked he ain't stubner answered that's his way trying to scare you it's just mouth fighting it isn't boxing was pat's comment and stubner with a quick glance noted that his eyes were as mildly blue as ever be careful the manager warned as the gong for the first round sounded and pat stood up he's liable to come at you like a man-eater and like a man-eater kelly did come at him rushing across the ring in a wild fury pat who in his easy way had advanced only a couple of paces gauged the other's momentum sidestepped and brought his stiff arched right across to the jaw then he stood and looked on with a great curiosity the fight was over kelly had fallen like a stricken bullock to the floor 
and there he lay without movement while the referee bending over him shouted the ten seconds in his unheeding ear when kelly's seconds came to lift him pat was before them gathering the huge inert bulk of the man in his arms he carried him to his corner and deposited him on the stool and in the arms of his seconds half a minute later kelly's head lifted and his eyes wavered open he looked about him stupidly and then to one of his seconds what happened he queried hoarsely did the roof fall on me chapter four as a result of his fight with kelly though the general opinion was that he had won by a fluke pat was matched with roof mason this took place three weeks later and the sierra club audience at dreamland rink failed to see what happened roof mason was a heavyweight noted locally for his cleverness when the gong for the first round sounded both men met in the center of the ring neither rushed nor did they strike a blow they felt around each other their arms bent their gloves so close together that they almost touched this lasted for perhaps five seconds then it happened and so quickly that not one in a hundred of the audience saw roof mason made a feint with his right it was obviously not a real feint but a feeler a mere tentative threatening of a possible blow it was at this instant that pat loosed his punch so close were they that the distance the blow travelled was a scant eight inches it was a short arm left jolt and it was accomplished by a twist of the left forearm and a thrust of the shoulder it landed flush on the point of the chin and the astounded audience saw roof mason's legs crumple under him as his body sank to the floor but the referee had seen and he promptly proceeded to count him out again pat carried his opponent to his corner and it was ten minutes before roof mason supported by his seconds with sagging knees and rolling glassy eyes was able to move down the aisle through the stupefied and incredulous audience on the way to his dressing-room no wonder he told a reporter that roughhouse kelly thought the roof hit him after chubb collins had been put out in the twelfth second of the first round of a fifteen-round contest stubner felt compelled to speak to pat do you know what they're calling you now he asked pat shook his head one punch glendon pat smiled politely he was little interested in what he was called he had certain work cut out which he must do ere he could win back to his mountains and he was phlegmatically doing it that was all it won't do his manager continued with an ominous shake of the head you can't go on putting your men out so quickly you must give them more time i'm here to fight ain't i pat demanded in surprise again stubner shook his head it's this way pat you've got to be big and generous in the fighting game don't get all the other fighters sore and it's not fair to the audience they want to run for their money besides no one will fight you they'll all be scared out and you can't draw crowds with ten-second fights i leave it to you would you pay a dollar or five to see a ten-second fight pat was convinced 
and he promised to give future audiences the requisite run for their money though he stated personally he preferred going fishing to witnessing a hundred rounds of fighting and still pat had got practically nowhere in the game the local sports laughed when his name was mentioned it called to mind funny fights and roughhouse kelly's remark about the roof nobody knew how pat could fight they had never seen him where was his wind his stamina his ability to mix it with rough customers through long grueling contests he had demonstrated nothing but the possession of a lucky punch and a depressing proclivity for flukes so it was that his fourth match was arranged with pete sasso a portuguese fighter from butchertown known only for the amazing tricks he played in the ring pat did not train for the fight instead he made a flying and sorrowful trip to the mountains to bury his father old pat had known well the condition of his heart and it had stopped suddenly on him young pat arrived in san francisco with so close a margin of time that he changed into his fighting togs directly from his traveling suit and even then the audience was kept waiting ten minutes remember give him a chance stubner cautioned him as he climbed through the ropes play with him but do it seriously let him go ten or twelve rounds then get him pat obeyed instructions and though it would have been easy enough to put sasso out so tricky was he that to stand up to him and not put him out kept his hands full it was a pretty exhibition and the audience was delighted sasso's whirlwind attacks wild feints retreats and rushes required all pat's science to protect himself and even then he did not escape unscathed stubner praised him in the minute rests and all would have been well had not sasso in the fourth round played one of his most spectacular tricks pat in a mix-up had landed a hook to sasso's jaw when to his amazement the latter dropped his hands and reeled backward eyes rolling legs bending and giving in a high state of grogginess pat could not understand it had not been a knockout blow and yet there was his man all ready to fall to the mat pat dropped his own hands and wonderingly watched his reeling opponent sasso staggered away almost fell recovered and staggered obliquely and blindly forward again for the first and the last time in his fighting career pat was caught off his guard he actually stepped aside to let the reeling man go by steel reeling sasso suddenly loosed his right pat received it full on his jaw with an impact that rattled all his teeth a great roar of delight went up from the audience but pat did not hear he saw only sasso before him grinning and defiant and not the least bit groggy pat was hurt by the blow but vastly more outraged by the trick all the wrath that his father ever had surged up in him he shook his head as if to get rid of the shock of the blow and steadied himself before his man it all occurred in the next second with a feint that drew his opponent pat fetched his left to the solar plexus almost at the same instant whipping his right across to the jaw the latter blow landed on sasso's mouth 
ere his falling body struck the floor the club doctors worked half an hour to bring him to after that they put eleven stitches in his mouth and packed him off in an ambulance i'm sorry pat told his manager i'm afraid i lost my temper i'll never do it again in the ring dad always cautioned me about it he said it had made him lose more than one battle i didn't know i could lose my temper that way but now that i know i'll keep it in control and stubner believed him he was coming to the stage where he could believe anything about his young charge you don't need to get angry he said you're so thoroughly the master of your man at any stage at any inch or second of the fight pat affirmed and you can put them out at any time you want sure i can i don't want to boast but i just seem to possess the ability my eyes show me the opening that my skill knows how to make and time and distance are second nature to me dad called it a gift but i thought he was blarneying me now that i've been up against these men i guess he was right he said i had the mind and muscle correlation at any inch or second of the fight stubner repeated musingly pat nodded and stubner absolutely believing him caught a vision of a golden future that should have fetched old pat out of his grave well don't forget we've got to give the crowd a run for its money he said we'll fix it up between us how many rounds a fight should go now your next bout will be with the flying dutchman suppose you let it run the full fifteen and put him out in the last round that will give you a chance to make a showing as well all right sam was the answer it will be a test for you stubner warned you may fail to put him out in that last round watch me pat paused to put weight to his promise and picked up a volume of longfellow if i don't i'll never read poetry again and that's going some you bet it is his manager proclaimed jubilantly though what you see in such stuff is beyond me pat sighed but did not reply in all his life he had found but one person who cared for poetry and that had been the red-haired schoolteacher who scared him off into the woods chapter five where are you going stubner demanded in surprise looking at his watch pat with his hand on the doorknob paused and turned around to the academy of sciences he said there's a professor who's going to give a lecture there on browning tonight and browning is the sort of writer you need assistance with sometimes i think i ought to go to night school but great scott man exclaimed the horrified manager you're on with the flying dutchman tonight i know it but i won't enter the ring a moment before half past nine or quarter to ten lecture will be over at nine fifteen if you want to make sure come around and pick me up in your machine stubner shrugged his shoulders helplessly you've got no kick coming pat assured him dad used to tell me a man's worst time was in the hours just before a fight and that many a fight was lost by a man's breaking down right there with nothing to do but think and be anxious well you'll never need to worry about me that way you ought to be glad i can go off to a lecture and later that night in the course of watching fifteen splendid rounds 
Stubner chuckled to himself more than once at the idea of what that audience of sports would think did it know that this magnificent young prize-fighter had come to the ring directly from a browning lecture the flying dutchman was a young swede who possessed an unwanted willingness to fight and who was blessed with phenomenal endurance he never rested was always on the offensive and rushed and fought from gong to gong in the outfighting his arms whirled about like flails in the infighting he was forever shouldering or half wrestling and starting blows whenever he could get a hand free from start to finish he was a whirlwind hence his name his failing was his lack of judgment in time and distance nevertheless he had won many fights by virtue of landing one in each dozen or so of the unending fusillades of punches he delivered pat with strong upon him the caution that he must not put his opponent out was kept busy nor though he escaped vital damage could he avoid entirely those eternal flying gloves but it was good training and in a mild way he enjoyed the contest could you get him now stubner whispered in his ear during the minute rest at the end of the fifth round sure was pat's answer you know he's never been knocked out by anyone stubner warned a couple of rounds later then i'm afraid i'll have to break my knuckles pat smiled i know the punch i've got in me and when i land it something's got to go if he won't my knuckles will do you think you could get him now stubner asked at the end of the thirteenth round any time i tell you well then pat let him run to the fifteenth in the fourteenth round the flying dutchman exceeded himself at the stroke of the gong he rushed clear across the ring to the opposite corner where pat was leisurely getting to his feet the house cheered for it knew the flying dutchman had cut loose pat catching the fun of it whimsically decided to meet the terrific onslaught with a wholly passive defence and not to strike a blow nor did he strike a blow nor faint a blow during the three minutes of whirlwind that followed he gave a rare exhibition of stalling sometimes hugging his bowed face with his left arm his abdomen with his right at other times changing as the point of attack changed so that both gloves were held at either side of his face or both elbows and forearms guarded his midsection and all the time moving about clumsily shouldering or half falling forward against his opponent and clogging his efforts himself never striking nor threatening to strike the while rocking with the impacts of the storming blows that beat upon his various guards the devil's own tattoo those close at the ringside saw and appreciated but the rest of the audience fooled arose to its feet and roared its applause in the mistaken notion that pat helpless was receiving a terrible beating with the end of the round the audience dumbfounded sank back into its seats as pat walked steadily to his corner it was not understandable he should have been beaten to a pulp and yet nothing had happened to him now are you going to get him stubner queried anxiously 
inside ten seconds was pat's confident assertion watch me there was no trick about it when the gong struck and pat bounded to his feet he advertised it unmistakably that for the first time in the fight he was starting after his man not one onlooker misunderstood the flying dutchman read the advertisement too and for the first time in his career as they met in the centre of the ring visibly hesitated for a fraction of a second they faced each other in position then the flying dutchman leapt forward upon his man and pat with a timed right cross dropped him cold as he leapt it was after this battle that pat glendon started on his upward rush to fame the sports and the sporting writers took him up for the first time the flying dutchman had been knocked out his conqueror had proved a wizard of defence his previous victories had not been flukes he had a kick in both his hands giant that he was he would go far the time was already past the writers asserted for him to waste himself on the third raiders and chopping blocks where were ben menzies reed reed bill tarwater and ernest lawson it was time for them to meet this young cub that had suddenly shown himself a fighter of quality where was his manager anyway that he was not issuing the challenges and then fame came in a day for stubner divulged the secret that his man was none other than the son of pat glendon old pat the old-time ring hero young pat glendon he was promptly christened and sports and writers flocked about him to admire him and back him and write him up beginning with ben menzies and finishing with bill tarwater he challenged fought and knocked out the four second raiders to do this he was compelled to travel the battles taking place in goldfield denver texas and new york to accomplish it required months for the bigger fights were not easily arranged and the men themselves demanded more time for training the second year saw him running to cover and disposing of the half-dozen big fighters that clustered just beneath the top of the heavyweight ladder on this top firmly planted stood big jim hanford the undefeated world champion here on the top rungs progress was slower though stubner was indefatigable in issuing challenges and in promoting sporting opinion to force the man to fight will king was disposed of in england and glendon pursued tom harrison halfway around the world to defeat him on boxing day in australia but the purses grew larger and larger in place of a hundred dollars such as his first battles had earned him he was now receiving from twenty to thirty thousand dollars a fight as well as equally large sums from the moving picture men stubner took his manager's percentage of all this according to the terms of the contract old pat had drawn up and both he and glendon despite their heavy expenses were waxing rich this was due more than anything else to the clean lives they lived they were not wasters stubner was attracted to real estate and his holdings in san francisco consisting of building flats and apartment houses were bigger than glendon ever dreamed there was a secret syndicate of betters however 
which could have made an accurate guess at the size of Stubner's holdings, while heavy bonus after heavy bonus, of which Glendon never heard, was paid over to his manager by the moving picture men. Stubner's most serious task was in maintaining the innocence of his young gladiator, nor did he find it difficult. Glendon, who had nothing to do with the business end, was little interested. Besides, wherever his travels took him, he spent his spare time in hunting and fishing. He rarely mingled with those of the sporting world, was notoriously shy and secluded, and preferred art galleries and books of verse to sporting gossip. Also, his trainers and sparring partners were rigorously instructed by the manager to keep their tongues away from the slightest hints of ring rottenness. In every way, Stubner intervened between Glendon and the world. He was never even interviewed save in Stubner's presence. Only once was Glendon approached. It was just prior to his battle with Henderson, and an offer of a hundred thousand was made to him to throw the fight. It was made hurriedly, in swift whispers, in a hotel corridor, and it was fortunate for the man that Pat controlled his temper and shouldered past him without reply. He brought the tale of it to Stubner, who said, It's only con, Pat. They were trying to josh you. He noted the blue eyes blaze. And maybe worse than that. If they could have got you to fall for it, there might have been a big sensation in the papers that would have finished you. But I doubt it. Such things don't happen any more. It's a myth. That's what it is. That has come down from the middle history of the ring. There has been rottenness in the past, but no fighter or manager of reputation would dare anything of the sort today. Why, Pat, the men in the game are as clean and straight as those in professional baseball, than which there is nothing cleaner or straighter. And all the while he talked, Stubner knew in his heart that the forthcoming fight with Henderson was not to be shorter than twelve rounds, this for the moving pictures, and not longer than the fourteenth round. And he knew, furthermore, so big were the stakes involved, that Henderson himself was pledged not to last beyond the fourteenth. And Glendon, never approached again, dismissed the matter from his mind and went out to spend the afternoon in taking color photographs. The camera had become his latest hobby. Loving pictures, yet unable to paint, he had compromised by taking up photography. In his hand baggage was one grip packed with books on the subject, and he spent long hours in the darkroom, realizing for himself the various processes. Never had there been a great fighter who was as aloof from the fighting world as he. Because he had little to say with those he encountered, he was called sullen and unsocial, and out of this a newspaper reputation took form that was not an exaggeration so much as it was an entire misconception. Boiled down, his character in print was that of an ox-muscled and dumbly stupid brute, and one callow sporting writer dubbed him the abysmal brute. The name stuck. The rest of the fraternity hailed it with delight, and thereafter Glendon's name never appeared in print unconnected with it. Often in a headline or under a photograph, 
the abysmal brute capitalized and without quotation marks appeared alone all the world knew who was this brute this made him draw into himself closer than ever while it developed a bitter prejudice against newspaper folk regarding fighting itself his earlier mild interest grew stronger the men he now fought were anything but dubs and victory did not come so easily they were picked men experienced ring generals and each battle was a problem there were occasions when he found it impossible to put them out in any designated later round of a fight thus with salzburger the gigantic german try as he would in the eighteenth round he failed to get him in the nineteenth it was the same story and not till the twentieth did he manage to break through the baffling guard and drop him glendon's increasing enjoyment of the game was accompanied by severer and prolonged training never dissipating spending much of his time on hunting trips in the hills he was practically always in the pink of condition and unlike his father no unfortunate accidents marred his career he never broke a bone nor injured so much as a knuckle one thing that stubner noted with secret glee was that his young fighter no longer talked of going permanently back to his mountains when he had won the championship away from jim hanford end of chapters three four and five